Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 38. Hear the word of the Lord. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now... Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray. And now may the words of... My mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. If it were up to me, I think I would never choose the name Presbyterian for a church. The reason is, is because it sounds vaguely ecclesiastical, but... It's not a word that is very common or that people really know what it means. It just says to people something churchy. Now, one advantage of it is that it gives me an opportunity when they say, what does that mean? But I don't know that it's a word that really helps us very much. So I don't know that if I were going back in the centuries that I would ever choose that name to describe a church. At the same time, I would personally never want to be a part of a church that is not Presbyterian. And I don't mean by that that it has to be Presbyterian in its title or in what it calls itself, but rather that it be, what we're going to see in this text, Presbyterian in the way it is structured. Now, um, a sermon on church structure sounds like a real snoozer, doesn't it? But I hope 
that by the end of it, you will not only understand the biblical structure of a church, but that you will also see why it is the best structure for everyone. What is a Presbyterian church? People ask me that. And then when I give them the answer, they sort of say, that's it? (laughs) What is a Presbyterian church? Here you go. Are you ready? It is a church led and pastored by presbyters. Now, presbyters, that's a Greek word, so we haven't gotten very far yet. Presbyter is the word that we translate as elder. So what's a Presbyterian church? It's a church that is pastored and led by elders. Shocking, right? (laughs) Astounding. That's what it means. And in that sense, there are many churches that are Presbyterian that don't have that in their title. Reformed churches are Presbyterian churches because they are led and pastored by elders. And by the way, not as a junior rank of minister, but as the ministers of the church. Um, There are uh, Assembly of God churches. They are Presbyterian churches because they are led and pastored by elders. Uh, The churches of Christ, they are Presbyterian churches in this sense because they are led and pastored by elders. Uh, More and more Baptist churches, although they wouldn't say it quite this way, but more and more Baptist churches are Presbyterian churches because they are led and pastored by elders. And more and more independent churches are Presbyterian churches in this sense because they are led and pastored by elders. Now, what we're going to do today is look at a unique text in the book of Acts, but also in the whole Bible, and that is because here we have the only recorded speech that Paul ever gave to Christians. The other recorded speeches we have in the book of Acts are Paul's instruction or his preaching to unbelievers. But this is the only recorded speech that we have of him speaking to Christians. Now, of course, we have his letters, and all of his letters are directed to Christians. But this is his only discourse, his only public speech that was directed to Christians. And, in this case, it was directed to the elders of the church in Ephesus, to the presbyters of the church in Ephesus. And so uh, we're going to see here basically two things, how Paul proposed himself as an example to those elders, and then he gave an exhortation to those elders. And by listening to what he said about his own ministry and listening to what he said about their ministry, we're going to understand what presbyters are, what elders are, what a biblically structured church should look like, and why it's so important and why it's so beneficial to both you and to me. What he was doing here is he was passing through, heading back to Jerusalem. He was in a hurry. He wanted to get back but he didn't want to miss out on speaking to his friends in Ephesus because he had lived there, uncharacteristically, he had lived there for a decent number of years, almost three years. Now, he, he lived there until he got ran out of there, and he, he didn't live other places for that long because he tended to get run out more quickly. But he used Ephesus as his base of operations to reach all of the province of Asia, which was a province of Asia Minor. And he, he was there with them, so these were, these were comrades, these were colleagues in the ministry. He knew them well, and he called them to go meet with him, and he was entrusting them the ministry, because he knew this would be the last time they would ever see him. So this is Paul's farewell speech to these elders. 
And what we see here is this, basically. To whom did Jesus entrust the ministry when he left? He entrusted it to the apostles. But then the apostles soon passed off the scene. To whom did the apostles entrust the ministry? Well, in one sense, to the entire church, but uh, in another sense, more specifically, to the presbyters, to the elders. And we see that in the book of Acts. The role that the elders played was a, uh, a, uh, an essential role in the life of the church. Now, what we're going to do here is first look at Paul's life, Paul's ministry, and this is very intimidating for any minister to look at how Paul conducted his ministry. It's challenging. Apparently, Paul needed to defend his ministry in Asia Minor, like he needed to defend his ministry in many places because he had many critics. And so this is something of a self-defense. And it might sound, it might sound sort of self-serving on his part as he's talking about his ministry and what he did and what he didn't do. But he's in a long line of farewell speeches in the Bible. And we read one of those farewell speeches already, at least the first part of it, back in 1 Samuel chapter 12. When Samuel, who had a very good reputation, and we find very little to criticize in Samuel, when he knew he was going to move off the scene, he did the same thing that Paul is doing here. He said, testify against me. Tell me if you have anything against me. Evaluate my ministry. This is the last opportunity that we have to talk like this. Evaluate me. This is what I think I've done. You evaluate it and testify against me. And in the case of Samuel, they said, we have nothing to testify against you. And he said, okay, your witnesses, the Lord has heard. You have not testified anything against me. And Paul is doing something like that. But in addition to that, He knew that his ministry would be the model for those elders. So whatever tone he set would be the pattern for those elders. So it was necessary for him to talk about his ministry. Well, what did he say? We're going to look at, not the details, but the the big statements that he made about his apostolic ministry. And we could summarize it by saying he gave himself fully to the ministry. And we have a number of uh, times here he, he uses words like whole and all and entirely. And we see that that's the tone. He gave himself fully to the ministry. Look at verses 18 and following. Uh, he says, When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the, what's it say? The whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, etc. Look at verse 31 as well. Not only the whole time he was there, but taking advantage of each day. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, what's it say? Night or day. So he gave his all of his time to the work. He also gave his whole self to the work. Look at verse 19. He served with humility and with tears. With tears. Uh, He was personally engaged. Look at verse 24 as well. He says, this is how he looked at ministry. I don't account my own life as of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So he discounted the importance of his own life if only he could fulfill his ministry. And then if you look also at verse 31, he mentions those tears again. He was very much engaged with the suffering of the people and admonished them with tears, every one of them. He gave also, 
the whole message. So he gave his all his time, he gave all his self, and he gave all the message. If you look at verse 20, he says to them, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And then verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Then if you go down to verse 26, he says something similar. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So he was not a a minister that simply gave people what they wanted to hear. He gave them what God wanted them to hear. And he preached, if you see in, uh, in 21, he says, he preached not only faith, but he preached repentance as well. He, he preached not only belief, but he re- preached turning from sin to God. And he says, I preached the whole council. I did not hold anything back that would be profitable to you. Everything that God has for you, I delivered over to you. That's why he could say, I'm innocent. I'm innocent of the blood of all because if you're condemned, it's not my fault. It's not because I did not tell you. I told you everything that God had given me to give to you. And then he also, he preached in every place that was available to him. Look at verse 20. He took advantage of preaching in public and also from house to house. Any opportunity that he had, wherever it might be, he took advantage of it. And then he also preached to everyone. 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. And by the way, in the Jewish mentality, that's the whole world. There are two categories of persons in the world. There are Jews and there are non-Jews. Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. So I preached to everybody. So what do we have? His, all the time, his whole life, the whole message, everywhere and to everyone. That was how his ministry was characterized. But in addition, he suffered great difficulties with cheerfulness. With cheerfulness. Um, he begins, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And then he says, and I know what's coming. More of the same. Verse 22. He says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Which is what he experienced up to this point. And he says, I know what I'm getting into. This is what's always been my case. And this is what I know is going to happen. I don't know exactly the details, but there's more of the same afflictions that are coming. He trusted God also in his ministry, even though he worked. One place he said he worked harder than any of the others because of the grace of God in him. But he didn't trust in his hard work. He trusted in the grace of God. Look at verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's why we see Paul being able to walk away. Well, usually getting driven away, driven out. But even so, he was able to do so and entrust the church to God in the hands the hands of the elders that they had left behind or were soon to to ordain in the churches. And one final thing, he managed money. He managed money with integrity and with generosity. That's what Samuel had said in his farewell speech, hadn't he? He'd emphasize money. He says, "Whose ox have I taken?" 
Any, any donkeys that are, are yours that are in my possession? Have I taken or defrauded anything from you? So he mentioned money as well. And here Paul mentions his handling of money. Verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He wasn't in ministry for money. On the contrary, he says, verse 34, You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who were with me. He worked with his own hands in order to provide where, uh, where he needed to do that. In verse 35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So, Absolute integrity when it comes to questions of money. Now he turns to the elders. And what he says to the elders is uh, direct instruction in verses 28 to 32. We're going to look at that. But by talking about his own life, he's already given them instruction, hasn't he? He's already given them, I should say us, because I'm a, I'm a presbyter, I'm an elder. He has already given us the greatest challenge, this this example in his own life. But then he, he addresses, them, addresses them specifically in verse 28. But uh, and now we're going to look at elder eldership and what it what it's all about. But before we look at the exhortation, I want to go back and look at verse 17 because there's something there that's simple but very very important. And it's this: it says, "Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. The elders of the church is that singular or is that plural? It's plural." Plural elders, more than one elder of the church in Ephesus. And what we find throughout the New Testament, there are always elders in the church. So it is never a one-man show. Uh, There is always a body of elders in every church. Always plural, never singular. And in addition, none of the elders are placed over or under any of the other elders. And so there are two principles of biblical eldership. The first one is plurality. There should always be more than one. And the second is parity. Parity, that they are on the same level. And um, we're still moving towards having members, let alone elders. So, so we're not here yet. Um, uh, we're not anywhere near here yet. We're still trying to get members together, a membership. Uh, but eventually, we will take steps to having multiple elders. And when we do, we'll finally be uh, having a biblical structure. By the way, we do have elders overseeing this work. That's why we're related to another church, because we insist that there be elders over every work, and there are elders uh, in uh, City Church, Fort Lauderdale, that are the ones that are responsible uh, for this work. Now, let's go to uh, verse 28 and following, and now we're going to see what elders need to do. It says here, verse 28, first thing Paul says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves. The first thing that Paul says is not how they should conduct their ministries, how they should preach. Uh, The first thing he says, watch out for yourselves. Pay careful attention to yourselves. This is the first and constant responsibility of elders in the church, that we would watch our own lives. That is essential. And according to what Paul wrote, which we'll look at some other day, what he wrote in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1-7, to 
and Titus 1, verses 5 to 9, elders need to focus this self-care, this self-watch, in three areas in particular. One is in personal godliness. Personal godliness. The second is marriage and family. Marriage and family. And the third is in biblical doctrine. Biblical doctrine. And if you think about those who have made shipwreck of their ministry, they have failed in one or more of these areas. Either by not practicing personal godliness, or by not ministering effectively to their own families, or by going off the rails in terms of teaching and doctrine. And so Paul says the first thing, the first thing to which you need to pay attention is yourselves in these three areas. And if you want to pray for your pastor, please pray for your pastor and for elders of all types. Pray that we would watch ourselves in terms of our personal godliness, in terms of our marriage and our families, and in terms of our doctrine. In order to take care of the church, first and always, elders need to pay attention to ourselves and our lives. Now, the next thing in this verse I want you to notice is a change of vocabulary. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. So in order to pay attention to the flock, the church, you need to pay attention to yourselves. And it says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Okay, a little Greek lesson. We already have one Greek word, presbyter. Now we have another Greek word, episkopos. Does that sound vaguely churchy as well? You've heard of episcopal churches? Well, uh, this word, overseers, in uh, older translations, it's translated bishops. Bishop. Here it's translated overseers. Episcopos. Okay? So, what's going on here? Whom did he call uh, from Miletus to come meet with him? The elders. The presbyters. And then he calls them... He calls them bishops. He calls them overseers. So what he's saying here is that these are not two different offices. This is one and the same office, and these two words have two different uh, foci. And uh, the other word that's used here as well, do you see this verb, to care for? That verb, to care for, it said, He has made you overseers to care for. That is the verbal form of the word that shows up in the New Testament as pastor. As pastor. So what do we have here? He is referring to the same group of men as elders, bishops or overseers, and pastors. So these are all the same men. These are not three different groups. Elders are bishops or overseers are pastors. These are all the same ones that are responsible for taking care of the work of the church. Then why these three, why these three different words? Well, elder refers to spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. Overseer refers to the work of giving direction to the church and to care for or to pastor also indicates the work, that it's the work of shepherding the church. This, um, this has gotten lost a bit in English because we don't refer uh, to pastors 
as shepherds, like when I introduce myself and people say, well, what do you do? I say, I'm a pastor. Uh, I don't say I'm a shepherd. Maybe I should, because maybe that would, that would help the conversation to, to be more interesting. But, but in Spanish, I had that advantage because it sounds a bit strange when people would say, what do you do? And I would say, soy pastor. It's the same word for pastor and shepherd. And they would say, you mean, you, you, like you live in the city, but you're, you're, you, you, you're a pastor, you, a shepherd, and I would get to explain, actually I'm a shepherd of, of a church. Okay, so it's not such a common word there, and the metaphor hasn't been lost. And I think that's a good thing, because too many pastors have lost the focus on what a pastor is, and that is a shepherd, a shepherd and have gone off the rails in terms of what our work is. Now, the church made a fundamentally wrong turn in the second century, and we're still feeling the effects of that. In the second century, early on in the second century, you find the first mention of somebody placing bishops or overseers over the elders. And so what began in the second century was a hierarchical approach to church structure. And from there, they went on and developed archbishops and cardinals and popes and patriarchs. But none of that is in the New Testament. None of that is part of biblical church structure. And that was a fundamental error by putting one group of elders over another group of elders. But there are other common deviations from this structure, and those might be more current among us. Uh, in many churches, even that have elders, one becomes something like the supreme leader and is not accountable to anyone. Not accountable to anyone. And that's very common, uh, even in churches that propose to be biblically structured, that one becomes untouchable. Uh, unaccountable to anyone, and as you know, that in many of those cases, it doesn't end well. There's another common error among us, and I would say even among those churches, or maybe even especially among those churches that call ourselves Presbyterian, and that is to look at the board of elders as if it were a board of directors. A board of directors. And instead of, instead of electing to that board the most Godly, with the, the most uh, godly families and the best doctrine and the best teachers of that doctrine, we look for the best administrators and businessmen. And we have our board of directors who are not shepherding, but simply they're doing the overseeing part, but they're not doing the shepherding part. Now, um, these elders, these overseers, these pastors, if we go on looking at what Paul says here, are not only to care for the church, to tend to the church, and this, this involves feeding the church as the shepherd provides food for the flock, but in, there's also a, a defensive aspect of the pastors. In verses 29 and 30, it says that the elders, pastors, overseers are the first line of defense for the flock. Verse 29, Paul says, I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. 
So not only positively to feed and to care for the flock, but also when there is a threat to the flock or any member of that flock, that's what the elders are there for, to defend against any sort of attack against the people for whom they are responsible. This is how David... David, before he was king, what was his job? He was a shepherd. And this is how David described his work. And this comes from uh, 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17 is where there's this giant named Goliath, and he's a a Philistine, and then there are the, the Jews over here, the Israelites, and no one will go out and fight him. Saul should have done that as the king, but he didn't. And so David, this shepherd boy, shows up, and he says... I'll do it. And Saul says, um, he is a fighting man. He has been a warrior since his youth. And this is what David says. David says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. This is how you know if you have a real elder, a real overseer, a real shepherd. That if there's any threat to anyone in the flock, that he responds in defense. Now, this man might be the gentlest, most patient, kindest man you know. But you threaten somebody in the flock for which he is responsible. And if you have a real shepherd, you will have the fight of your life on your hands. And he actually may go down, but he'll go down swinging in defense of the people that God has entrusted to him. That's how you know that you have a real shepherd. That's how you know you have a real elder. That's how you know you have a real bishop or overseer on your hands. And in so doing, he will be following an example much greater than the example of the Apostle Paul. If you look at verse 28, it says here that you're to, the elders are to care for the church of God, which he obtained with His own blood. His own blood. That's a curious expression. It could be translated and maybe should be translated the blood of His own. But however it should be translated, it's referring to Jesus. And it's referring to the lengths to which He went to take care of His sheep. And He said that, didn't He? In John chapter 10, He was contrasting Himself with those who just wanted to take advantage of the sheep, who were jumping over the wall and and doing things to the sheep and taking advantage of the sheep. And Jesus said, also contrasted Himself with the hireling. The hireling, the the one who's, who's taking care of the sheep just because He gets paid to do it. And he says, in contrast to the thief who comes in to to cause damage, and in contrast to the hireling who's just there to receive a wage, he says, I, I am the good shepherd. And how do we know he's the good shepherd? He went on to say, because I lay down my life for the sheep. That's how you know what a shepherd is.
Because Jesus showed us what a shepherd is. Jesus is the one who's the great shepherd, the good shepherd. And how do we know that? Because He laid down His life for the sheep. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You that we have an elder, an overseer, a pastor, a shepherd, who gave Himself for us. And we thank You that You have not left us alone in the church, but since You have given us under-shepherds, little pastors, little overseers, men whom You placed in Your church in order to do for us what You want them to do for us, nourishing us, caring for us, tending to us, defending us when there is an attack. God, we thank You for this structure that You have placed in Your church. And we thank You that we can be a church that is enjoying this structure. But the structure itself doesn't keep us from harm. Lord, we pray, and I pray, for every elder that ever exists in this church, that every elder, starting with me, that we would be godly men, that we would have families that are believing families, glorifying to You, and that our doctrine would be the doctrine that's in Scripture, and that You would keep wolves from arising among us, and that we would have everything that we need to fend off every attack that might ever come against this church, that all of our needs would be cared for by the shepherds You give us, and that every defense that we need would be in place when the attacks come from within, or from without. We thank You, O Good Shepherd. We praise You for giving Your life for the sheep. And we pray, O God, that You would raise up shepherds in this church and in every other church who would do the same for the sheep that You have purchased with Your own blood. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.